sometimes I just uh, will do a little research on one of the songs that Heidi's picked for the service, um, just because the the stories behind a lot of these hymns are pretty good. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I have to I have to Google it. So. <clears throat> Welcome back to the Apostle Paul's second inspired letter to the church that was meeting in the city of Corinth. Um, the city of Corinth had a history of spiritual prosperity. And we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll read verses 1 through 15 in a moment. Um <clears throat> The city of Corinth had a history of spiritual prosperity. They had enjoyed such a a pouring out of the sign gifts during the time of transition in the early church that they were known around the Christian world for this phenomenon. And However, they had in their abundance squandered what God had given them. Some of you know the story of the Corinthian church and the the path that they took. They had allowed the little foxes of carnality to creep into the vineyard and spoil the vines, so to speak. Paul's first letter to them addresses these issues and rebukes them for their failures in this regard. How many of you love being rebuked? Just love being told how you've been messing up. No? You don't like that, huh? Well, there was a lot of uh, tension between the Apostle Paul and the, city of, and the church meeting in the city of Corinth for this reason. And the church in Corinth was devastated by Paul's first letter, as you can imagine. They repented, though, and... They learned to move past the immaturity of obsessing on the sign gifts. And they repented and rebuked the carnality that was in their midst. And they accepted the rebuke of Paul. And they grew into a spiritual powerhouse. I mean, into a powerful and balanced body of believers. A lot like Gospel Light Baptist Church. Everyone laughs. That's funny. <laughs> well, at least you have humility. Um, and this, this put them in the perfect position to take the next step and contribute to the ministry, growing even stronger and, and, and beginning to expand their world impact. The Corinthian church had stepped up to the plate and had committed to helping with a gift to the church in Jerusalem. Now, over the last few weeks, we've seen Paul's encouragement to fulfill their commitment. We uh, had a couple of sermons on the subject of giving, and, in, and from those verses in the, in the previous chapters, we've learned a lot about giving. Very important part of the Christian life. A sign of spiritual wellness, if you will. 
and then we saw last week how Paul thought of his ministry team. I mean, what a powerful lesson that was on um, from the Apostle Paul on, on ministry and, and our involvement in ministry and our place in God's plan. Today we're going to uh, continue in the former theme on the subject of, of the Corinthian church's planned gift to the ministry. And today we see Paul begins the chapter talking about his expectations of their giving. But around verse 6, Paul begins to lay down some succinct and powerful principles on what is a related subject, but not necessarily the same subject. It's the subject of abundance. And we're going to begin to study that together today. The first five verses um, gives us our context, and we're going to see some principles of abundance. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Let's read our text. We're in um, 1 Corinthians Nope, we're not. We're in 2 Corinthians. Thank you. I heard, I heard, I heard whispering all over the room. Second, second, second. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verses 1 through 15. So you'll notice kind of the change in theme as we move into verse 6, where we're going to um, spend most of our time between verse 6 and verse 15. For as touching the ministering of the saints, we're in verse 1, it is surprising. That's funny. Superfluous. I love that word, and I just can't pronounce it. Superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our voice... our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest haply if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty whereof ye had noticed before, that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. Now we move into verse 6. But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. Not grudgingly or of necessity, For God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, He that dispersed abroad hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness." being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth through us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgivings unto God. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, 
They glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and for your liberal distribution unto them and unto all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you, for the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage that does so clearly lay out the principles of abundance in which you want us to live. We just pray, Lord, that each of your children this morning would listen submissively as we allow you to teach us about living in abundance. Help us, Lord, to embrace the life that you have prepared and reserved for us. And then, Heavenly Father, if there is someone here that hasn't yet embraced your unspeakable gift, I just pray that... um, your Holy Spirit would make them aware of its availability to them and and, uh, challenge them and and enable them to reach out and accept it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The context does set up the text. That is, verses 1 through 5 sets up the text beginning with verse 6 in a significant way. So let's walk through those first five verses together. And in verse 1... Paul is clear that he's talking to people who do not need to be told to serve each other. Do you see that in verse 1? He says, For as touching the ministering of the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Getting better at saying that word. And the word superfluous means, you know, it's unnecessary. They had this down pat. They didn't need for Paul to instruct them in this particular regard. They knew that serving fellow brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the greatest joys of life. And i got to tell you something. If you are unaware of this fact, if you think, well, life is really good serving God and, and, um, you know, just learning from the Bible and getting filled up by... uh, his word and, and enjoying the presence of the Holy Spirit. All of this is really good. But you have not embraced the joy of serving others. It's, you've missed dessert, folks. I mean, this is, what, this is where real joy in, in God's service comes from. And so the Apostle Paul says, you, know, you, don't, you don't need me to tell you about this. You've figured this out. Um, and, and, and look, if, if you'll embrace this, it'll change your whole outlook on life. The most miserable Christians I have met are those who have no place serving other Christians or they do so with the wrong motivation. This was not the case with the Corinthian church at this stage in their spiritual growth. Paul says, I'd be wasting ink to write about this issue with you. It's a pretty powerful statement. Now, if the Apostle Paul was writing to you, could he say, well, here's one thing I do not need to write to you about. You you have got down serving each other. You're you're doing that so well. In verse 2, Paul expounds upon his confidence in their mindset in this regard. He says that he is boasted of their forwardness, their boldness, their earnest desire to serve. He's used them as an illustration of generosity and and, and an illustration of giving to churches in different regions. In verse 3, 
we see that the Apostle Paul is warning them, or at least notifying them, that he had sent messengers, those of whom we spoke of last week, as a matter of fact, that ministry team, in a time when schedules were much more difficult to maintain, it was kind of a good idea to get the heads up uh, messages out by any means possible. You know, it's not like the Apostle Paul could say, okay, well, looks like uh, my Outlook calendar's popped up and says that uh, we're going to be picking up that gift from the Corinthian church. I'd better send them a text and just let them know. Right? No, he would have he had to get on the phone. No? Drop a line. Send them an email. Send them a letter. By messenger only. <laughs> right? So you can imagine the concern of, in, in something as uh, potentially awkward as picking up a gift that they've committed to give. You can imagine the concern of making sure he didn't surprise them, right? So he just he's, he's sending this message out there and making sure that they uh, get the heads up by any means possible, and and uh, so that in no way they are caught unawares or unready. And that's exactly the reasoning that he gives in the next verse, in verse 4. It seems Paul is citing a desire to avoid the embarrassment of the team showing up and kind of catching them unawares and empty-handed. And in verse 5, Paul is pointing out that his, his forward team was simply meant to help them prepare. He didn't want them to feel like there was undue pressure, just that they were going to help them prepare. The concern... Should this not go as planned? Is that the Corinthian church be colored as covetous instead of bountiful? You see that? Covetous instead of bountiful. Now that's the lead-in to the sermon this morning. The bounty that characterized the Corinthian church was how they should be known. Paul wanted them to continue to be known for being bountiful, for living in abundance. Not wanting them to have a reputation for covetousness. Do you see how bounty, how abundance is juxtaposed against covetousness in verse 5? He says, be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. As if bounty or abundance is an opposite to covetousness. Do you see that? Covetousness, and and I want you to think about how these two are opposite. Bounty, abundance, is a mindset. It's a state of having plenty. Covetousness is the state of of wanting more, specifically, what someone else has. The former is satisfied and happy. The latter is miserable and bitter. Do you see how the two contrast? Bounty, abundance, is having enough, being happy with what you have. Covetousness is saying, I don't have enough. And I really, 
I think I should have some of yours. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you've got way too much. I need some of that. Right? That's covetousness. The lesson here is that covetousness can characterize someone who is either rich or poor. Because let's face it, we have all met covetous people of on all ends of the financial spectrum. Right? And you can be you can live in abundance on either end of the financial spectrum too. So as the lesson here is that covetousness can characterize someone who's rich or poor, contrastingly, a person who is rich or poor can live in abundance. And it's abundance that should characterize the lives of Christians. You know, the Bible speaks an awful lot about abundance. It speaks a lot. Of, it, uses the words, it uses the word bounty quite a bit. That idea of abundant living. Jesus said that the life that he came to give us is an abundant life. He contrasted himself with the thief that comes to steal. And he says, but I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. So I'm not like the thief that comes in and leaves you feeling like you don't have enough. I've come so that you might live a life of abundance. So that you might have the feeling of fullness in your life. Knowing that I have got plenty. Now, you might have a definition of abundance that is so limited to financial riches that you're having trouble grasping this. And it may sound to you like, man, Pastor Josh has gone all prosperity preacher on us, you know. (laughs) Because it seems in our culture that abundance is related to having a lot of stuff and money, right? I am not talking about having a lot of stuff and money. Although having a lot of stuff and money does not preclude me from living an abundant life. Abundance doesn't have anything necessarily to do with how much stuff and money I've got. So, if if you have a definition of abundance that's limited to financial riches... You don't understand the abundance that God promises to make available to those who embrace Christ as Savior. Abundance has to do more with having enough than having a lot. And in the ensuing verses, Paul gives four very distinct principles of abundance. And the first one I find in verse 6. The first principle of abundance we find in verse 6. Let's read that together. But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now this principle, the principle of sowing and reaping, has two possible applications and both are shown in this verse. Everyone see those two applications? The first application is the reaping of a person who shows, 
who sows sparingly. And how does he reap? Sparingly, right? Sowing, uh, let's just take that one step at a time. What is sowing? What is the principle of sowing? Sowing is the investment that someone makes with the expectation of a return, right? You don't plant a seed in the ground because you're tired of looking at it and you're hoping it'll never show itself again, right? Oh my goodness, I've got all these ugly seeds. Maybe if I just dig holes and put them in there, they'll disappear forever. That's not the way sowing works, right? No, sowing is is an investment that you make with the expectation of a future return. And so if I sow one seed, do I have expectation of a hundred plants at harvest time? Pretty practical stuff, right? <laughs> if I sow sparingly, I will reap sparingly. It's the it is, sowing is the effort that is expended with the idea that there's going to be fruit from your efforts. I want you to while while there is a clear and powerful application of these principles to your finances, I want you to step away from your finances in your mind a little bit and apply this to every aspect of your life. Sowing can literally be effort. It can be energy that you invest in things. If there are small efforts, if there are sparing investments, the fruit of those labors will also be small. I know it seems like the American way is, i got to find a way to reap bountifully while sowing sparingly. Right? And it seems every advertisement in the financial world out there promises you exactly that. If you sow, if you buy this product, you have to sow so little and you will reap so much. <laughs> right? Every every advertisement out there uses this trick. You know it's a lie, but you so want to believe. <laughs> this is more than just a natural principle. It is an eternal biblical principle. The principle of sowing and reaping. If I sow sparingly with my efforts and with my work, I will reap sparingly. From my efforts and my work. There will be no abundance. Because there is a sparsity in the sowing. This is the first application of the principle. The person that sows sparingly will reap sparingly. If you are... uh, If your reaping in life is sparing... Say, I am not getting much. And if you feel like you don't have enough and that your life is unsatisfactory, you must consider the possibility 
let me interject into the sentence. Yes, there's other possibilities too. But here's the first most common possibility that your sowing has been sparing. <laughs> okay? That, that's, the, that's the principle of sowing and reaping. The opposite application of this principle is for the person who sows bountifully. That's the positive side. The promise is that the abundance comes as a result of sowing bountifully. And we know this is true practically. You want abundance in your life. You want, the, you want that feeling of having enough, of knowing that I'm okay. And what I've got is exactly what I need. And I'm happy with it. Whether that be a lot or a little, having that sense of abundance is what we're shooting for here. Let me tell you where that comes from. It comes from sowing bountifully. Some of that sowing is working hard, right? Just from a practical standpoint. Some of that sewing, when it comes, now, now we'll step back into your pocketbook for just a minute. Okay, don't worry. I'm not going to take anything. It's looking pretty sparse in here, by the way. What's, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> when it comes to um, that sense of fulfillment in life, an accomplishment in God's work. Are you sowing sparingly or sowing bountifully in His work? And that too can be finances and or energy and time and and uh, and, and effort and all of this. You want to be abundant in your service for God and live abundantly in this area of your life so bountifully. Okay. So the first principle is is the principle of sowing and reaping. The second principle, and this one is the most related to giving, and we've already stepped back into your pocketbook, so we're in the right place. It is the principle of cheerful giving. Right? The principle of cheerful giving. Look at verse 7. It says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. So, you know, some may think that the person who lives in abundance, in great happiness, is that person who's learned to keep what they want for themselves. But that is simply not the case. The person who lives in abundance is a giver. All right, And once again, I'm not talking about quantity. I'm talking about quality here. I'm talking about the person that is happy with what he's got, that has a sense of fulfillment in life and of bounty and abundance. That person is a giver. This person doesn't give out of necessity. He doesn't give grudgingly. He actually just loves to give. And when you are so fulfilled and living in abundance, giving is just one of those joys of life. Giving makes this person happy. And they give cheerfully. Look at the way that verse begins, though. Okay? Because 
um, this is how God wants us to give. He wants us to contribute to society as as well as to his ministry with purpose. You see the beginning of that verse where it says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart. See, that's actually the key to the last phrase about the cheerful giver. You realize that? When we, when we give purposefully, we, we do so with deliberation, thinking about our responsibilities, taking into account how God is providing for our needs, and then decisively being generous. And that's purposeful giving. That's as a man purposeth in his heart, so let him give. And that's the only kind of giving that can be cheerful. When we give like that, there's just there's no regrets. I mean, we planned it. And we executed the plan. That's how we should give. So often we're trapped into giving out of guilt or impulse. Because we haven't planned how we're going to give in the first place. And we have all been there, right? We know what it feels like to get to that place where, oh, man, I need to give. Oh, this is going to hurt, right? <laughs> and and that, that, that's, that's not the cheerful giving that God's talking about. That's giving out of necessity and perhaps grudgingly. It gives us a sense of having met the requirement, but it leaves us less prepared for future giving. And that isn't giving God's way. We are to make clear-eyed, well-thought-out plans, and then stick to those plans. And that's how we can be cheerful givers. Now, for a moment, because I know that when we apply these principles to finances, that sometimes um, our, our eyes can glaze over a little bit. Right? So let's just step away from finances just for a little bit and apply this principle practically. Um, so forget about money for a minute. Let's ap- apply this principle to energy. How many of you have energy? Look, if you're tired, get the guy next to you to raise their hand for you. Raise your hand for you, okay? <laughs> um, let- <laughs> You have enough energy to climb 30 stairs to sit in a church pew. That's pretty good, you know. I mean, that, that's, that's not nothing, okay. Um, and there's steep stairs too, but we'll move on from there. When, when you plan out your schedule and you stick to your plan, you're happier and you accomplish more. You go to bed at the planned time. Not because you can't find anything else to watch on TV, but because it's time to go to bed. Right? You know that principle? Right? Um, and then you wake up in the morning at the scheduled time. And you begin to spend the energy that you've gained. Right? That's a, that, that is the way a, a disciplined life works. Unless it's the summer. No, I don't want I don't want anyone to think I'm picking on them. So, so you 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 go to bed at the planned time, and and uh, you wake up in the morning at the scheduled time. You begin to spend the energy that you've gained. You plan for a certain number of hours working, sowing, so that you might reap rewards. You know, and uh, and you get a request 
to help someone in the afternoon and you see that your schedule allows it and so you give of your energy and your efforts to that person and you help them out and it's a happy occasion to give when your planned activities allow it and leave you with the energy to do so, right? How many just love helping each other? I mean, it's great, isn't it? And it's great whenever someone calls you and you say, "Yeah, I can do that." You can't. You just can't wait to go and help. And you and you you help and and uh, and you get home and you're like, I, "I've had a good day." That you know what that's called? Abundant living. That's what that's called. All right. But then there's the possibility of. Uh, not being purposeful. Contrast that with a person who does not make purposeful decisions and plans about giving. You go to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning because you can't stay awake any longer. You drag, you drag yourself out of bed and you go to work thinking about taking a nap instead of, ta- instead of eating lunch. <laughs> I do that all the time. At the end of the work day, you get the same call for help, and you respond in the same way. However, you're exhausted. you got very little to offer, and you kind of feel a little put upon. Because you know that that person that's asked you for help, they have no idea what they're asking of you. Because you're just, you, you don't have, you hardly have anything else to give. You've given just like the first scenario, but you've given perhaps a little grudgingly, certainly out of necessity, not cheerfully. And it doesn't add to an abundant life. You get home and you're thinking, great, now what am I going to eat? You know, (laughs) right? You know that feeling, right? You know where it all started? With the lack of purpose. At the beginning of the process. When you look back at verse 7, and it says, God loveth a cheerful giver. You know, um, in, in this passage, we tend to focus on that last part of the verse, in which we see our giving is supposed to be cheerful. And beloved, that doesn't mean putting on a plastic smile while you give grudgingly. All right. <laughs> it takes planning to give cheerfully. Hey, I, I, I've given out a duty many times. It's not nearly as fun as giving cheerfully. But here's how you give cheerfully. You look back at the first part of that verse where every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give. We rarely notice the first part of that verse that shows that our giving is supposed to be purposeful, which is what makes it possible to be cheerful about it consistently. The next two points take up more verses than the first two. And I've got about half the time, so that's about good. And I think that because they're so essential, um, they take up a little bit more uh, verses, but perhaps... 
they're a little more difficult to understand, too. If you look at verses 8 through 10. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. As it is written, he hath dispersed abroad, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness remaineth forever. Now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food, and multiply your seed sown, and increase the fruits of your righteousness. There are three words that govern these three verses. And they are in the first line of verse 8. God is able. Alright? This is the principle of the sufficiency of God. Um, This isn't a word, but we don't use sufficiency an awful lot. So, you know what sufficiency means? It means enoughness. Okay? That would be a great word. Enoughness. That's what sufficiency means. Um, Remember what abundance is? It's the happiness that comes with having enough. And that means abundance can be evidenced in the life of a poor person or a rich person because it has more to do with your attitude than your bank account. So ask yourself if you're living in abundance the way Jesus intended. Are you happy with the plenty that God's provided for you? When we excuse our lack of abundance, our lack of satisfaction with what we have, we usually point to our own resources, don't we? And to our own situation. Because it's hopeless. And it's limited. And say, I would be living in abundance except that my situation limits me. And my abilities are limited. And my resources Oh, they're just so limited. We see our own limited abilities and our own limited energy and we think, I just can't do any more. Have you ever said that? I just can't do any more. We see our situation, we see the sparsity of the seed, you know, what we've got to offer. We see the hardness of the ground, our situation, and the cost of living and we think that abundance must be for people who live in different situations than we and abundance must be for people who have different abilities than us and our refrain is I I just can't now listen you are right about that and if your abundance was dependent entirely on your abilities upon your situation and upon your energy, you would be sunk. But God is able. You see, that is how anyone can live abundantly. God is able. He's able to pour out grace into your life. Do you see that in verse 8? He's able to make all grace abound towards you. He's able to make it abound in your life. He's able to do so in such a way that you have enough to abound in your expenditures of service for him. Just look at how it says that. It says, um, having all sufficiency in all things, may it, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. You see, God is able to pour out so much grace into your life 
that you're able to do more good work for him. That's the principle of the sufficiency of God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that you just need to do more. Okay? Because I, I know how, I, know how um, I might take this message. Alright, I just need to work harder. I just need to put it all out there on the line and grab the bit in my mouth and go forward. I can do this. No, you see, you're missing the point. I'm not saying that you just need to give more. We've already established you can't. What I'm saying is that you need to trust God more. You need to learn about his place in your world. Verse 10 begins to help with this. We're going to come back to verse 9 in a minute because it speaks of someone who's living in abundance. Um, He's living in abundance because he understands the truths of verse 10. Verse 10 speaks of God. The one who makes sure that the sower has seed. He's the one presiding over all the work. The sower works for him. He's the one that makes sure the sower has enough to sow. Do you see that there in verse 10? Now he that ministereth seed to the sower. That's God, right? And... I lost my place. Just give me a second. <laughs> so, he, he's the one that makes sure the sower has enough to sow. And not only that, he also makes sure that the sower has enough to eat. You see that in verse 10? Not only does he make sure that the sower has seed to sow, but he also makes sure that the, 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 uh, the sower has bread for food. Do you see that in verse 10? His job, God's job, is to care for you. Not just the people to whom you minister. I think sometimes when we invest ourselves in the Lord's work and we realize how much God cares for people and we see ourselves as God's channel of blessing to them and we, we, we try to surrender ourselves to that end, sometimes we forget this. I'm one of the people he cares about. It's not just everyone that I serve. His job is caring for me. So, in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. That's his vocation. His job is to care for his servants, and he will make sure you are fed. He also makes sure that you have enough seed to sow, that you have enough energy to expend in his service, that you have the finances required to contribute to his work. He will also, when it seems your efforts are insufficient, show himself to be all-sufficient. Look at the next line. He will multiply the seed sown. Do you have a little? He'll take your little and he'll multiply it. That's how you can sow bountifully. You simply place yourself in his hands, trusting him to do something wonderful. And you'll find that abundance comes as a result. If you step out of his hands, stop trusting him, you will immediately have less than you need. 
And that's because you are not designed to be your own boss. You are designed to work for him. And he's able to take care of his work. Let him take care of you. Once you've grasped the truths of verse 10, and you embrace God's role in your world, his role is to care for you, to make sure that you're fed, to make sure that you have enough energy and enough, enough seed to sow. And his role is to make sure that your seed multiplies and brings even more fruit. That's all his job. And once you've grasped the truths of verse 10, you can live like the man in verse 9. You see here in verse 9, Paul is quoting Psalm 112 in which the righteous man lives in abundance. Let me just read that whole passage Psalm 112, beginning with verse 6. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor, his righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. That's the abundant living of a person that realizes the sufficiency of God. If God is enough for you, you will be satisfied in whatsoever state you are in. More than that, You will be full, happy, and abundant. I know what time it is. We have one more point. I just want you to know I know what time it is. Okay. Verses 11 through 15. We see the last principle, the fourth principle of abundance. It is the principle of thanksgiving. Paul here points out the purpose of abundant living. Do you realize it's not so that we might be more comfortable or pleased? Because that's usually our uh, purpose in trying to live abundantly. Yeah, I want to live abundantly. I'm tired of being so worn out all the time. I want to be a little more energetic. I want to be a little more comfortable. And Yeah, I want to live abundantly. Eh, You got the wrong motive. All right, Paul said, that's not what this is about. Living abundantly means I get to glorify God with my life. He wants the Corinthian church to grasp this, that being enriched so that they might live bountifully has its greatest purpose in the praise and credit that God gets from the situation. Look how Paul positions the need against the glory of God. Um, he says, being enriched in everything to all bountifulness, which causeth us thanksgiving to God. For the administration of this service not only supplieth the want of the saints, but is abundant also by many thanksgiving unto God. He positions the need, that is the want of the saints, against the glory of God. Certainly our contributions to ministry do meet needs. Right? 
That's often what really tugs at our hearts are these needs that people have. And we're able to make a difference in someone's lives by our giving, but that is not, should not be the primary reason for our contribution. What makes this giving fall into the realm of abundant living is the fact that God is thanked for what we do. In verse 13, we see that the recipients of the gift that Corinth was giving would glorify God for the faithfulness of a people that they did not know, for the generosity of a family that they had not met. They would rejoice in the way God supplies for his family and they would assume that the Corinthian church was like this to everyone they met. Indeed, that's what abundant living is all about. Abundant living is not just about the offering time. Okay? That's, that just naturally falls into place when God's people are living abundantly. Abundant living isn't about just the finances and the tithing. It's about living in a way that makes people around us thank God for how good He is. The Corinthian church would gain a prayer partner in this contribution also, as you can see um, (coughs) in verse 14. The church in Jerusalem would be praying that God might pour out his greatest blessings upon the church in Corinth. And this is how abundant living comes to fruition. And finally, Paul ends the chapter with his own expression of thankfulness, in light of which all abundance lives. Thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. We must receive the abundant gift of God if we are ever to live abundantly. We have seen from these four principles that key to the abundant life is embracing what God does for us personally. Then and only then can you hope to live abundantly, be happy, Be satisfied with what God has provided for you. Remember who He is. What His job is in your life. Your part in His greater plan. And the privilege of bringing glory to Him with everything we do. And then we can live abundantly. But if you've never received that greatest gift of the person of Jesus Christ as your Savior. If perhaps you have always thought that what Jesus did was a down payment for your sin and that perhaps you would have to finish that payment yourself, you're missing out. You have missed out on the the abundance of that unspeakable gift of which Paul speaks in the last verse. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your only Savior, not as a saving partner, but as your sole salvation, you can make that decision today. You can begin to live the abundant life starting today, embracing the greatest gift that God's ever given.
We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. It's in your hymn books at number 308. And I, I would challenge you, child of God, if, if you find yourself in this Christian life not living in abundance, not satisfied and happy with the position in which God has placed you, not happy with His provision, these four principles will change your life. I know that because they came from this book. This book is never wrong. Go ahead and stand with me as we sing number 308, I Surrender All. Father, thank you for the privilege of serving you. Thank you, Lord, for the ability that you have to give us an abundant life. Help us, Lord, to embrace that gift from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.